Well, hey, normally I'm the one that gets to deliver the sermon. I get to preach the word. But this morning, I actually get to sit and hear the word. And I want you to know, I've preached hundreds, probably actually thousands of sermons at this point. And there's something different when I get to sit under the preaching of the word as opposed to deliver the preaching of the word. When I sit and hear the word of God, it doesn't matter who it's speaking. It doesn't matter what, what the situation is. It almost doesn't matter what's going on in my life. When I come with an open heart, it's amazing to me how God uses a speaker and his word to pierce straight to my heart, to deal with issues in me, to grow me into more of the person that he's calling me to be. And I say that to you this morning as someone that normally gets to preach because I want you to be ready to receive what God has for you this morning. And so just as we focused our minds on worship a few minutes ago, I want you to open your heart, to open your mind, and maybe to open a journal or a notepad to get ready for what God has to speak to you this morning. And let's welcome Pastor Susie as she comes to preach the word to us. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, for those in the room that we have some staff here, you know, I need some amens, guys. And when you're... When you're at home, feel free to amen the screen, not me, you know, but the word of God, that deserves an amen. So um, it's great to be with you. It's great to, you know, be one church, even to, you know, have traditions and Ording Valley and the gathering all represented online. So welcome everyone in this unique way, like Pastor Caleb said, to uh, meet together. But hey, we're meeting together. We're not going to give that up. So Hey, this uh, week we're continuing our series, Victorious. We've been looking at the churches in the book of Revelation. In uh, the first few chapters, we see um, Jesus giving a vision to John. And he gives some specific instructions to seven church communities. And we believe that, hey, these were specific to them, but we can learn something from Jesus' words, right? They're always applicable to us. And so we're going to hear what it means to be victorious from the one person whose opinion actually matters, and that is Jesus. So we are going to jump into the church at Pergamum today, and we're going to go right there off the top. So we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and let's read together. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth." Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. 
So this is Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. And there's a lot there, actually, even though it's only five verses. And so Pergamum is one of the cities that is kind of, you know, in the same region that we've been reading about. So it's in Asia Minor. And Pastor Caleb talked last week about emperor worship. And that was very much the culture in the city of Pergamum as well. And so they were worshiping the emperor that was living. It wasn't worshiping someone who had died. It was worshiping the person who was in political power at the time. And in fact, Pergamum was the first city to actually build a temple to emperor worship. So this was a big deal for them. And it was also a big deal to worship other gods. They didn't stop with emperor worship. They kept going. They had an altar for Zeus. They worshiped Athene. They worshiped Dionysus, Eclipus. There was so many different gods that they were worshiping. And even the Christians at, time, at that time, they were expected to sacrifice to these different gods. And much like the church at Ephesus that we learned, not participating in these kinds of religious festivals and things like that, that would result in social, you know, social consequences, in economic consequences even. Um, but then on the flip side of this, which is kind of interesting to me, is that they also had the second largest library in the world. So... <laughs> Just think about in ancient times, they had over 200,000 volumes in this library. So to me, I get this picture of Pergamum where they have kind of all of these spiritual things going on. And then they have all of this knowledge type things going on. And they kind of like put them in a pot and mix it up. And they say, yeah, this sounds good. That sounds good. All of this together just seems like a society that is just kind of accepting everything. And so in the face of all of this, the church has remained loyal. Jesus says to them in verse 13, he says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. So Jesus says, I know where you live. And not just like, I know your address. <laughs> He's like, no, I understand what you're living in. I understand the culture. I understand the city. I understand the struggles that you have. And he says, you have remained loyal to me. You have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred. So it's pretty extreme to where it's not just accepting the culture, it's at risk of death. And they have remained loyal. Jesus says, good job. I'm so proud of you. You're pushing back the darkness that's in the city. You're staying loyal and saying, no, Jesus is the way. He's our God. We're following after him. But, and you know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, people that start out with a compliment, then they move to, but, you know, something's coming, right? He says, I have a complaint against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So they are entertaining false teaching at the church in Pergamum. They're entertaining false teaching. If you don't remember Balaam, we'll give a little bit of a background, but I encourage you to read his story in Numbers, uh, chapters 22 through 25 is when we read the story of Balaam. And man, it's really crazy what happens. Um, if you don't remember, he is a prophet 
And he's not a false prophet because he actually does hear from God, but he's an evil prophet because he doesn't just hear from God. He's also tuning into other spiritual forces at the time, and he's using that power that God, is, that, that God has given him. He's using that power of prophecy for evil and not for good. So he's, he's an evil prophet. And so what happens in this story of Balaam is that Balak, who's the king of Moab, he's frustrated because the Israelites have moved into his land. And he's like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't want them here. I want them to be weak. I don't want them to take over. And so he says, hey, I know this guy Balaam. And he says, Balaam, can you come and curse the Israelites? And so Balaam's like, yeah, for a price. <laughs> and so King Balak says, yeah, I'll give you a reward. That's all yours. And so Balaam says, yes, I'm, I'm all for it. And so to make a long story short, he goes and he tries to curse Israel. And he can't. And he ends up pronouncing a blessing over them. And then Balak's like, no, that's not what I wanted. That's the opposite. And so he tries again. And again, he cannot curse them. And then he tries a third time. And again, he cannot curse them. And he tells Balak, he says, I cannot curse people because God is telling me to bless them. And I cannot say what God hasn't told me to say, which is so interesting. We'll come back to that at the end. But Balaam comes up with an idea because he still wants his reward. And he says, hey, I know how you can weaken them though. I know how you can get them to turn their backs on God. And he says, send your women to Israel, to the Israelites, and have them engage in sexual relations with the Israelites. And that will get them to turn from God. And he says, have them eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. Have them engage in idolatry. Have them put something else above God and that will get them to turn their back on God. That is what Balaam does. That's his false teaching that's referenced here to the church in Pergamum. And so what does it look like to be victorious from God's perspective? Remember, Jesus knows how to be victorious. He's, taught, he's teaching us how to do it. When I think of victorious, I think of sports. I don't know about you, but victory, sports, they kind of go hand in hand. And so I wanted to share a bit today. You know, I'm actually a basketball person. So I brought a little basketball. And uh, yeah, we can bounce on the stage. That's awesome. Um, I played basketball from elementary right up till high school and uh, love basketball. And you know, I don't know about you, when you're at home, leave a comment, who is the best NBA player? Because I've got my opinion, but I want to see what you guys say. There is a right answer to this quiz, so um, I will be checking the comments later. And uh, no matter who you think the greatest of all time is, the GOAT is Michael Jordan. Plain and simple, case closed, mic drop. Michael Jordan is the GOAT. I don't, if you're a LeBron fan, I'm sorry, no, it's not him. So... What makes Michael Jordan great, though? It's really interesting because Michael Jordan faced some, uh, he, he actually didn't make a team in high school. And what did he do is he went and practiced, right? Michael Jordan, if you know anything about him, man, he's notorious for just how dedicated he was to the sport. And so he practiced all the time. And when you're practicing basketball, you practice dribbling, right? You learn that. You might practice passing. Um, but, of course, you need to practice shooting, Right? And so typically, you know, that's a shot. I have a pretty good shot. I've practiced a lot my shot, actually. Um, so, you know, you got, you got to get that wrist 
action on your shot. But when you're first learning basketball, you shoot a different way, typically. When kids learn basketball, they shoot a different way, right? They shoot underhand, or what's affectionately known as the granny shot, <laughs> right? The granny shot, that's how we learn the game. And what's interesting about this is that the granny shot is actually super accurate. It's actually way more accurate than your typical shot because there's a lot less variables and like the release is, there's a lot of science behind it. We won't go into that. But the granny shot, it works better. It's actually easier to repeat. And so, like I said, I'm a basketball fan. So if you know some history of basketball, there are some people who've used the granny shot actually really effectively. One of them was Wilt Chamberlain, among the, one of the best players in basketball. And he holds the most points in a single game with over 100 points. How crazy. Over 100 points. Only person to do it. And you know what he did during that game? The granny shot. On the free throw line, Wilt Chamberlain did the granny shot. And you know what? He made 88% of his free throws that day. 88%. Which is saying a lot because Wilt Chamberlain is not good at free throws. He's not. Normally, he's around 50%. And in this game, he chose the granny shot and he made 88%. It's funny because Shaquille O'Neal, he's another person who says, yeah, I actually, I know the granny shot is more effective, but I will not use it. And he's also horrible at free throws. But they choose not to use it. Why? Because it looks ridiculous. It looks so ridiculous. No one would ever choose that. You would get laughed off the court, right? And this is what a life with God is like. Because a life with God looks different than anything else, but it's actually more effective. It's actually what God created us for. It, it's because God knows what actually works. And so even though it looks silly to the rest of the world, that's the victorious life. And so how do we live a victorious life from God's perspective? First of all, it's a life that is wild. And this is the theme of our winter camp for Sound Life students coming up this weekend. So I had to shamelessly use this point. And Pastor Darren from Ording Valley, he's going to be preaching on this very thing this Friday and Saturday. And so I'm so excited for that. And the point of wild is not just like wild, parties, fun. It's also a life that looks radically different. A life that looks radically different, just as radically different as a granny shot would be to see in the NBA a life with God is radically different. And that even affects the smallest things. It affects things like our Facebook and our Instagram and our TikTok. Those things should look radically different than anyone else's we see. The language we use as Christians, it should look radically different, not just the words we say, but how we treat people with our language. It should look radically different the seasons of our life, our single seasons, when we are single people, it should look radically different. If God blesses us with a marriage and a family, that should look radically different. And the Bible calls this a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, 
that our life is a living sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice that's done and an animal is dead and we move on. It's day after day, moment after moment, God, I give you this. I give you this situation. I give you this relationship. I give you this struggle. Day after day, a living sacrifice. And what was important in Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum was that your sexual behavior should be defined by the word of God. It should be defined by the word of God. This includes what we do with our bodies. As Christians, this should be radically different and not even what we personally prefer. Not even what feels natural to us. It's what God says. Remember that granny shot, God created us. He knows what is good. He knows what's actually more effective eternally, what's actually beneficial eternally, not just what feels good now. And God knows what is good. And he said what is good. He said that he created sex to be in the container of a marriage between a man and a woman. All of our sexual behavior exists within that container And even the smallest compromises are big deals. They are big deals because Jesus redefines it, right? He changes the game and he says, hey, adultery, it can be in your mind. Adultery, that our love should look different. That it includes our sexual behavior. It includes our identity. It includes our body. And I hope you, you know God's heart on this is that it's, it was never about behavior. God's laws are not about making rules to make us stick in this boundary. What his laws are, are to keep us from separating ourselves from God. It's to keep us in the healthiest way because God knows what is best. And that's why we run from sin is because it separates us from God. And so no matter what your sin is, Before you met Jesus, we are all dependent on Jesus' forgiveness. And just like we sang earlier, he's there to freely offer it to us. He's there to freely offer it to us. So what does a life look like victorious? Number two is that it looks like a life that is ruthlessly putting God on the throne. A life that ruthlessly puts God on the throne. And this was really another central message to the church in Pergamon was that you are you are participating with idols. You are eating food sacrificed to idols and that is not what God wants. That's not God's best. And and for us today, we're not doing that. (laughs) Obviously, we're not eating food sacrificed to idols. We don't have, you know, what you think of an idol, a, a statue or something in your room. But idolatry looks like whatever we put before God, whatever we give preference to over God. So that might be our comfort, It might be entertainment. It might be even our personal preference. Um, It can also look like a thing that we put before God, a celebrity. It could look like someone we worship, a politician. It could look even just like the appearance of keeping up with the appearance that everything's okay. No matter what it is, what's before God? And I think sometimes we think of idols and we think of bad things, but idols could be good things too. Is it getting a preference over God? Is your preference for even doing good works, is that what your heart is more than your devotion to God? That could be an idol. And Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum is is clear. He's saying you cannot love 
anything more than the gospel. You cannot love anything more than that. And he's saying, follow what my faithful servant Antipas did. And that was in the face of a choice between putting something, which was his life, pretty important, his life above denouncing God. Antipas chose God. And Jesus said, that's what you are to do. I think to me, I get this, this clear message from Jesus that the culture is not an excuse. The culture is not an excuse. It wasn't for the church in Pergamum and it's not for us now. Even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when there's economic sacrifice, and even when there's persecution or threats of death, there's no excuse to have any idols before the Lord. We have to ruthlessly remember that we've got to tear those down all the time. It's not just a one-time thing. It's all the time making sure that we are taking out everything that we're trying to put in front of God. And what does it look like to be victorious? Number three is a life marked by humility and repentance. Humility and repentance. These are integral to Jesus' message to Pergamum because he will protect his bride, which is the church. Jesus is devoted to the church. He values the church. And he will not accept anything less than a victorious church. So he says, if you allow this in your church, I will judge you. I will come. What's interesting is that Balaam was originally threatened with a sword. In the beginning of his story in Numbers 22, originally he was threatened with a sword. And then at the end of Balaam's story, Numbers 25, he dies by the sword. So that's a parallel to us that the church is not exempt from punishment if we continue to tolerate evil among us. If we continue to tolerate evil and false teachings, if we continue to tolerate idols, if we continue to tolerate sexual immorality, we are not immune from judgment. And that should check us in our spirit as a church. We are not immune. And so far we've talked about how we can personally apply what this call to the church at Pergamum is. But let's not forget, this is a letter to a body of believers. And so there's some application for us as a church as well. And the command from Jesus is to protect the church. We are so good at caring for one another. I, I sense that heart a part of Sound Life Church. I know for me, like some of the biggest cheerleaders in my life, some of the people that have shown me the most care are a part of our church, are part of Sound Life Church. And I love that about our church. And I think about even the early church, they didn't really have a problem of caring for one another. Right, We hear about them meeting each other's needs, sharing all they had. They had a deep care for one another. And so what the, what the thing that we have to do is we have to know what to look out for. Because the church in Pergamum, I, I think that they didn't know what to look out for. I think that they were a little lax on what the teaching was happening. They're like, oh, okay okay, that sounds good, or maybe that's not good for me, but that's okay for you to teach that. We have to be careful in that. We have to know what we believe to the very core. We have to know what God says. These are the foundations of your belief. These are the doctrines of the faith, and these are not 
things to be compromised. We have to know what those things are. Just like we sang earlier today, this I believe, those are in good faith with one another, that's loving, that's kind, that's okay if we walk away with different opinions and beliefs. We need to know the difference. We need to be wise. We need to be people of the word who know what the word says and then who know, hey, this is an area that Christians, we, we have differing beliefs and that's okay. But we need to be vigilant about the things that are core to our faith. Think them, or even just saying, hey, that's true for you, but this is not true for me. God defines truth, not us. And there are things that we cannot compromise on. And we need to know the difference. I think oftentimes we shy away from conversations like this because we don't want to judge. But a part of becoming the family of God is that we submit ourselves to one another. And that's so important. We submit ourselves to accountability. We submit ourselves to correction. We submit ourselves to those things. And we need that in one another. We need that. I need that. You need that. We all need that. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you cannot sacrifice your witness as the church is victorious. The church is victorious. And he gives us a picture of what this looks like. What does the victorious future of the church look, excuse me, look like? Verses 17, verse 17, he says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit. Skip down a little bit. He says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Here's Jesus again with the symbols. We love that. But they have meaning. They're not just like random symbols he chooses. They have meaning. And so first of all, he says, there's hidden manna for you. There's hidden manna, which just means that Jesus is going to sustain us. There's so much more background on this that, man, if you want to get dorky, you can read all about. But in Numbers 25, in the story of Balaam where the Israelites actually eat the food sacrificed to idols, what's interesting is that they should have been eating manna. They should have been eating manna. And so the hidden manna that's in heaven is God's unlimited supply to us. That he will, he will sustain us eternally. Number two, he talks about the white Stone, And there's so many different symbols that go with this. But for me, I think it just means that Jesus reverses guilt. Jesus reverses guilt. It also portrays righteousness. And as kind of a, a symbol back then, it was given to people as an admission to a party. Like an exclusive party, it was your ticket in. Well, it's really interesting when you think of our eternal reward that Jesus has given us righteousness, he's given us the ticket in, and he's reversed our guilt because one of the, the things a white stone did was it was a sign that someone had been acquitted, that a guilty verdict had been reversed. And the last symbol he gives us is a new name. What that means for us is that Jesus is going to give us his name. And to be given a new name, we see this in the Bible all the time. It's an indication of a new status, right? From Saul to Paul, from Sarah to Sarai. It's the power of Sarai to Sarah, sorry. We are, we are now identified with Christ. In Revelation chapter 22, he says that this is going to happen. 
He says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Our new name is Jesus' name. That's the victorious future of the church. As the band comes to, to close us out, one more interesting thing about Balaam that I think is so important to note In Numbers 22, verse 18, he references the Lord my God. And so Balaam had a true encounter with God. And yet he chose idols. He chose false gods. He chose evil. And so there is a difference between knowing God and being devoted to him. And that's where we find ourselves today. Are you devoted to God? And Jesus makes it pretty clear that devotion to God is essential to followers of Christ. In Matthew chapter seven, he says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the the will of my father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And even though I've heard that verse a hundred times, it still shakes me to my core and we need to take Jesus seriously. That he says, You're doing this in my name, but you don't know me. We need to take him seriously at his word and know him. And so our response today is pretty clear. Revelation 2, 16, Jesus says, therefore repent. And what is repentance? Repentance is not saying you're sorry and moving on, although it involves confession and that's very important. Sometimes that's the hardest part, but it also involves an action. It involves turning from one way of life and going into what God has for you. It's something that bears fruit, which is just the Bible's way to say, we should be able to tell. We should be able to tell that you're different, that you're changed, that you heard Jesus speaking to you and you said, God, I will listen. I repent of my sin. I repent where I've put other things first. I repent of where I've compromised your witness in my life. And God, I believe you, I trust you. So I wanna give you an opportunity to just quiet your mind before God and let him speak to you. Where do you need to repent? We all need to repent. None among us is without blame. None among us is without sin right where you're at, where is some, something you've let slip? Where is somewhere, maybe it's just in your mind. Maybe it's just a thought, but maybe it is something big. Maybe there is some really big sin that you need to deal with. And it might just be that you haven't played your part in the church. You haven't been on guard. So today we're gonna end with this time of reflection as the worship team sings and leads us. Will you reflect, take this opportunity to repent before Jesus?